Dr. James Gordon is renowned for his work in healing population-wide psychological trauma. He's the founder of the Centre for Mind-Body Medicine, where he's worked in numerous war zones around the world, most recently Ukraine. He's the author of Transforming Trauma, The Path to Hope and Healing. And he'll be the keynote speaker at Boulder's Highland Institute on June 26th. I was involved in the uh, participant in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And my um, original, my therapist when I was in medical school was a man named Robert Coles, who was a psychiatrist who was helping the little black kids who were integrating the schools in New Orleans, helping them brave the onslaughts of, of murderous mobs. So he was an example to me uh, of somebody who could be a psychiatrist and work with people individually who also saw and wanted to affect the larger context. By the time I got to the National Institute of Mental Health as a researcher, my work was in community psychiatry and ultimately working on, initially working on the streets with homeless and runaway children and ultimately creating a national program for runaway and homeless children and working with community-based programs. By the time I started the Center for Mind-Body Medicine in 1991, I wanted to bring, uh, I wanted to emphasize not only working with populations, but also giving people the tools that they needed to understand and help themselves. So a shift, a major shift in many ways from a medical model that was doctor dependent to a public health model in which people could learn to uh, understand and help themselves in which they could come together in groups and in community to support one another and to find their way forward. So when I started the Center for Mind-Body Medicine in 1991, that was a very important part of what I was thinking and and feeling. And um, as we began to work initially in the United States, training people. From the beginning, we've been an educational institution, training psychiatrists and psychologists and doctors and nurses and social workers and counselors. I also began to ask the question, well, if this work is going so well with these individuals here in the United States who are working in hospitals and clinics and social service programs, what about what about working in some of the most difficult places on the planet? Can this model? And that was a question that came to me because I've always wanted to work with people who need it most. That's why I became a doctor. So I wanted to be helpful. And I wanted to be helpful to those people who, for medical, psychological, economic, ethnic reasons, were in the biggest trouble. So at that point, I said, okay, let me go to some of those places. We're some of those really troubled places. So a colleague, family physician and I went initially to Mozambique, which had had both a a war of liberation and then a colonial war, which took hundreds of thousands of lives. And we spent some time with former child soldiers who were then in their late teens, and they had had horrible things done to them, and then they had committed atrocities against other people. And we saw that the same tools and techniques that we were using with doctors and psychologists in the United States, teaching them, we could also teach to these kids. And they could find a little bit of peace, a little bit. They could do soft belly breathing, slow, deep breathing, a concentrative meditation. And they could relax a little and think a little more clearly and feel a little easier. And we could get them up shaking and dancing their bodies because they're so rigid, so shut down emotionally. 
because they had to protect themselves against the terrible things done to them and not fully acknowledge all the horrible things they'd done to other people. So that was helpful to them in terms of opening them up. And then we spent some time working with people who were um, who lost family members during apartheid in South Africa. And we saw the approach could work across cultures. And that led us to Bosnia, which in turn led us to Kosovo, and in turn to the Middle East, back to Africa, to Central Asia, um, and ultimately to Ukraine. So the, the idea was, what let's work in those situations um, where people are being massively traumatized. And, and the second piece of that is after working in Bosnia, going to Bosnia after the war, when the whole society was torn apart, as soon as the war in Kosovo began in 1998, we knew we had to go and begin work there. That the time to work with massive trauma, the trauma that's caused by war, is when the war is going on. That's why we went to Kosovo in the middle of the war. That's why we're in Ukraine now in the middle of this war. What did you find in Ukraine? As you said, you found that your work is most effective when you're right there in the middle of the war. You've recently returned. What did you find? Well, I've now been to Ukraine four times since the Russian invasion of February 2022. And what's clear to me, first of all, is that the whole population is traumatized. Uh, In the early visits, I spent a lot of time with children. And 60% of the children in Ukraine have had to leave their homes. Um, there have been many children killed. Children understand intuitively uh, that this is a war against them. It's a war against the future of Ukraine, not just a war against the fighters. And the children know people who have lost their homes. They know have family members or friends of friends or adults they've seen who have lost their homes and people have moved into their homes from the combat zones, even those kids who are far away from the combat. So first of all, everybody is affected. And second of all, there is a growing understanding. And the first lady, Olina Zelenska, um, President Zelensky's wife, has been very helpful with this in making mental health and dealing with the psychological trauma that people are experiencing a priority. So on this last visit, when a team of four of us, first three visits, I went by myself. This time I brought several other people, our program manager, another member of our faculty and a videographer. And as we began to go from place to place as part of our first large scale initiative, which I'll talk about in a moment, but as we began to go from place to place, people were so receptive. And not only the psychiatrists or psychologists you might expect would be interested, but the mayors, the deputy mayors, the men and women who are in charge of sanitation and vaccination in the villages, the teachers, the principals of the schools, everybody. We went to seven different regions. We're working with eight regions now in Ukraine. And and the reception was wonderfully positive. And and my most recent book, which focuses on trauma, which, which is called Transforming Trauma, The Path to Hope and Healing, we'd have that translated into Ukrainian. And the people who had read it were so excited, and the people who hadn't were so eager to have something in their hands, to have a manual, a comprehensive manual, that after we did the workshop with them, that they could take home and they could practice the techniques they'd learned. So there is a sense in Ukraine of a whole population that is united by the trauma of the war, 
and that is committed to dealing with that trauma and that is eager in a way that is sort of wonderfully refreshing and, and quite humble, eager to get help from people who have dealt with population-wide trauma before. These people were training and we've been meeting with, they're very skilled at what they do. And they say that we're very good at what we do, whether it's vaccination or psychotherapy or leading a school program, but we don't know how to deal with this massive trauma. They're saying to me and to my team, you guys have done this other places, please help us. And they're eager to include what we have to teach in their work. What are some of the techniques that you're introducing and teaching and training people in Ukraine on how to deal with this trauma? We begin, as I begin my book, basically with with four experiences. The first is the deep understanding that it is possible to move through and beyond trauma. It's uh, a part of life, It's not, and it's not something to be ashamed of, and it's not pathological. There is no stigma to saying I've been traumatized and I'm anxious or worried or concerned or shut down because of that. So those two understandings, that trauma comes to all of us, that it is possible even for the most severely traumatized people, and I've seen this in 50 years of work with people who are severely traumatized, for people to come through the trauma, to come out on the other side, not only with reduced symptoms and feeling better, but feeling more complete, more whole, more purposeful, having more meaning in one's life than before the trauma happened. We now call that post-traumatic growth. And then the first two techniques we teach, the one I mentioned, which we started teaching the child soldiers, is slow, deep breathing. And, and maybe our listeners will want to do this along with me. Maybe you will. Breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth with the belly soft and relaxed. And this is a way to mobilize the vagus nerve, V-A-G-U-S, it is a way to antidote the fight or flight and the stress response. Fight or flight and stress response, they're survival mechanisms. But when they continue after the immediate trauma is over, after the immediate threat has passed, or if the threat is continuous as it is in a war, and we stay in that state of fight or flight, we become anxious, um, we become fearful. Our capacity to think and be self-aware and have compassion is reduced. So slow, deep, soft belly breathing in through the nose, out through the mouth, reverses those limiting factors, reverses the anxiety, enhances mood, decreases fear, allows us to think more clearly. And I explain that this is true on a biological basis, that doing this kind of quiet concentrative meditation or a mindfulness meditation regularly not only changes and enhances brain functioning, it changes brain structure. And there is hard research on that. You decrease the size of the amygdala, the center of fear and anger. You increase the size of areas of the frontal cortex responsible for responsible decision-making and thoughtfulness and self-awareness and compassion. And people notice the difference. 80, 90% of people, even in the middle of a war, when I was there this last time, they say, oh, I feel calmer. Uh, the room looks brighter. Uh, my thoughts have slowed down. My heart rate is lower. My shoulders are relaxed. They notice the difference. So they realize 
that they have the capacity to make a difference in how they feel. They can't stop the fighting. They may not even be able to escape from the fighting, but they can change how they feel internally and therefore give themselves greater capacity to deal with the stress that's inevitably there. And then we also teach them very early on that it is possible to, um, to open up trauma-frozen bodies, to recover and express emotions that people have had to suppress. When we're traumatized, it mobilizes the fight or flight response. We either fight, or and this is built into all vertebrates, all animals with backbones. We either fight or we get out of there. When the fight or flight response continues because the trauma continues or because we're remembering what happened, then we get into trouble. Uh, then heart rate continues to go up, blood pressure goes up, stress hormones continue to be put out at a high level. Um, so the first antidote to that fight or flight is the soft, deep, soft belly breathing or some kind of mindfulness practice. When the trauma is overwhelming, when fight or flight doesn't do the job, when it's overwhelming and inescapable, and in a domestic situation, think about abused children. The people who are abusing them are there often enough, they're caretakers. They're big, the kids are dependent on them, the trauma is overwhelming, and it's inescapable because it's five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, you can't get out of the house. So in a war zone, people also feel overwhelmed and they feel the trauma is inescapable. And what they do is they shut down their bodies and I'm people can't see me on the radio. I'm kind of clasping my shoulders and my chest is hunched over and I'm all tight inside. And in that state, which is technically called freezing, we also put out endorphins to protect us against the pain. And we withdraw psychologically. Um, so people who are in uh, in the combat zone, people I met from Mariupol or um, or Kyrgyzstan or Kharkiv or any of the Bakhmut, any of these places, they have had to shut down in order to survive. And when you see them, and, and we met with some of them on this last trip, they are indeed all hunched over. They don't have much facial expression and they feel removed. So we get them up moving their bodies. We get them shaking their bodies for five minutes or so, and then relaxing and being aware of their breath and their body, and then put on some music to energize them, to get them moving. And it's like, it's like they come alive again, and maybe feelings come up. Because when you're in that situation and you're so overwhelmed, you can't really afford sorrow. And you certainly can't get in touch with um, with laughter or even with fear because it's so overwhelming, you've just completely shut down. So this helps people get back in touch with their feelings. And then in the next stage, we give them the opportunity to, as they have become a little more relaxed, a little more uh, hopeful that change is possible, as their bodies have opened up and they've become more in touch with their feelings, we encourage them to express themselves in drawings and in words and in movement. And the program unfolds and we teach 16 self-care techniques. All of those techniques are in transforming trauma. So listeners can look at them, read them for themselves and practice them. And these are all evidence-based techniques that work 
on our biology and our psychology. You're listening to KGNU. I'm Maeve Conran. And today we're speaking with Dr. James Gordon, the founder of the Centre for Mind-Body Medicine and author of Transforming Trauma, The Path to Hope and Healing. He'll be speaking about his current work in Ukraine on June 26th at Boulder's Highland Institute. The talk will be streamed live online and you can find out more at highlandcityclub.com institute. Well, one other technique that you write about in Transforming Trauma that I was so interested in, because I have not heard this part before, is how trauma can impact the gastrointestinal system. And you write about the need to have a trauma healing diet to repair the trauma damaged gastrointestinal system. I've never heard of the impact of trauma on our intestines. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And thank you for bringing that up, because I, I don't know of any other and any other book that really focuses on that on that aspect, and it, and it can be really important. Um, the, the trauma affects every organ and every cell in our bodies. Uh, we know that there is complete interconnection of our thoughts and feelings and our physical functioning. That the same molecule that in the brain is called a neurotransmitter. When that very same molecule is in the immune system, it's called a cytokine. And when it's in the endocrine system, it's called a hormone. But it's the same molecule. There's constant communication. And there's constant communication with the gastrointestinal tract, which has a huge portion of our immune system and a very significant portion of our nervous system. So, for example, what happens when we are significantly traumatized is that every aspect of our gastrointestinal tract is affected. I'll just touch on a couple parts of that. If you look at the small intestine, the small intestinal cells are ordinarily very tight together so so that molecules, proteins in particular, that are not supposed to cross from the intestine into the bloodstream can't cross. There are what the scientists call tight junctions between the cells. When we're traumatized, the cells in the small intestine tend to split apart. And proteins that are not supposed to cross from the gastrointestinal tract into the bloodstream do cross. And those proteins can cause inflammatory reactions in every part of our body, in our joints, but also in our brain. And one of the reasons that people become sensitive to gluten, for example, who are not genetically predisposed they don't to they don't have a major genetic abnormality that predisposes them to be sensitive to gluten but what happens is that after significant trauma or long-term stress the tight junctions separate between the cells and gluten molecules migrate across that junction into the bloodstream they go everywhere in the body and they can cause major inflammatory reactions, which in turn can cause anxiety, depression, cognitive difficulties if they happen in the brain. If they happen in the joints, they can cause what we call arthritis. Uh, If they happen in the skin, they can cause dermatitis. So this is one place where it's very important to understand that we have to repair the GI tract, the gastrointestinal tract, and I recommend for people who've been seriously traumatized to stay away from gluten 
because it, it may only be necessary for a few months or a year or two, but don't take the don't take the chance for those first first months of those gluten molecules migrating across the intestine. Also, eat in a way that is friendly to the intestine. Uh, we want to maximize the activity of the microbiome, those beneficial bacteria, those trillions of bacteria that live in the small and also in the large intestine. So we need to eat the kinds of foods. We need to eat the kinds of vegetables and, uh, and, and, and fruits and whole, and whole foods and fiber that maximize the health and integrity of the microbiome. And when we do that, fascinatingly, and this is recent research, a healthy microbiome gives signals to the vagus nerve, that very same vagus nerve that is the antidote to fight or flight and stress response. They give signals to the vagus nerve that the vagus nerve then brings back to the brain to help repair the brain that has been damaged by trauma and by chronic stress. So those are just two of the ways that making uh, that paying attention to the GI tract and making dietary changes can make a difference in how we deal with trauma and chronic stress. What are the implications if we don't address trauma, not just in conflict areas, war zones like you've been working in, but as we mentioned earlier, your work originated in communities in the US also living through different forms of trauma. So what are the implications if we're not dealing with this? Well, we've, we've worked in the US in uh, in, in cities and uh, places, counties, where there has been massive trauma from school shootings, for example, or other mass shootings, for example, the mass shooting in Las Vegas that killed 54 people. We've been working with the Capitol Police uh, following the January 6, 2020 insurrection, uh, which injured so many of them and traumatized the whole police force. What happens um, is that the if you think about the the continuation of the fight or flight and the freeze response, if those are not addressed early on, they continue and they produce symptoms that are entirely predictable. So high levels of anxiety, for example, if you're in continual fight or flight, decreased ability to concentrate, troubled sleep, that's one of the main ones that comes up. Irritability, when I was talking with people from the Capitol Police, um, we, I was a, a kind of a group of about 15 men and women. And they talked about, they, they said, you know, my wife says I'm a pain in the butt since the, since the interest. She's sympathetic to me, but she says I'm very difficult for her. And she's right. I'm irritable with her. I'm irritable with the kids. Um, so those kinds of symptoms continue. And also the emotional withdrawal, the shutdown, the isolation, that also can continue. I've seen that a lot. We've worked a lot with U.S. veterans, and we've seen the, how isolated they've become because of the significant trauma. But all of us, I think this is important to know that everybody in this country was more or less traumatized by the COVID pandemic. I don't know anyone who wasn't significantly affected. We did a, a number of groups online with people who were healthcare providers, with people who were, you know, just ordinary people in communities all over the United States. And they described the um, the, the sort of preoccupation and the fear that had taken, taken over their lives and the constraints that came about because of COVID and the deaths, particularly among people of color. 
Uh, I don't know any adult black person who didn't lose somebody who was close to them, friend or family member, or any of our, um, we work a lot with indigenous people. We've had a major program on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. We've been working in the Southwest and the Midwest and, 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 and many places with indigenous people. All of them suffered significant losses during COVID. And every family, every family had to cope with the kids being at home. And what, you know, the sort of the, 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 uh, the challenges of online learning and of social isolation. So everybody was affected. And what happened is, again, it's predictable. More irritability, more fear, more uncertainty about the future. Many people, many people put on a lot of weight because of anxiety. They were eating to deal with anxiety. Um, people, number of people drank more. And, and old illnesses resurface. I knew a number of people of uh, my acquaintance, some were patients and some are just, you know, friends and other people I know who had the reactivation of chronic illnesses like migraine headaches that had been at bay for years. I don't know if you saw that as well, but that kind of, that kind of global trauma, no, we're not, we, were, we did not have a war, but over a million people died in this country. Uh, and, you know, maybe we don't, it's not that we like to remember it, but um, but it, there it is, and, and and we all know it, and we all know what we experienced, and we all know that we were very vulnerable. And of course, some people reacted by completely denying what was going on, but they became very angry, many of those people, and they latched on to, in, in many cases, solutions that were, you know, I suppose, convenient, gave them a, a, something to believe in, but were not terribly well thought through. And I think that's that's also was a symptom of the, the sort of cognitive distress based on emotional, uh, significant emotional trauma that people experience. That they, uh, and afterwards, I, I met people who, you know, denied, denied the existence of COVID or the need for the vaccines or masks. And then somebody in the family dies and they say, oh, my God, you know, it was a start. What was what was I thinking? But they were so many of those people were so traumatized. They weren't thinking so clearly. They were looking for a way to um, a way to kind of protect themselves psychologically from from this threat that was there for everyone. But another thing that just strikes me as as I'm listening to you talk about just living with this fight or flight you know, situation is what's happening with the climate. And, and here in the Rocky Mountain region, we're living with increased fires, wildfires at all times of the year. Is that something that you're seeing trauma related to now, what's happening with the climate crisis? From 2005, we began working after Hurricane Katrina uh, in New Orleans and southern Louisiana, and then in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. California after the wildfires and uh, it's affecting everyone now that uh, I think it, it's 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 coming home to people in Broward County Florida we began working there because of the school shooting in Parkland but people are becoming very sensitized to climate change because of because of flooding that's taken place there and other parts of Florida uh, I see climate change as as traumatizing and I see it potentially as a wake-up call. We've got to pay attention. There is the temptation to go into the freeze mode because of climate change. Let me shut down. I don't want to believe it. It's not going to happen. We're going to find all the technological answers. I don't have to do anything. I don't want to hear about it. 
And I think a lot of people feel that way. But clearly, a large number of people don't want to see what's going on. And it is traumatizing. On the other hand, um, so many other people, including particularly children, are keenly aware of the dangers that are coming with climate change. Uh, and you know, we're very eager to work with groups that are, that are working on uh, environmental issues because it's really important that this consciousness of the damage that climate change is doing and can do, that this consciousness be there and that people have the tools to deal with the anxiety and the fear and the tendency to sort of hide from it that comes because they don't know what to do about it. I think the, the goal here is to help people come into balance so they can really use all of their intelligence and all of their intuition and all of their sense of compassion and caring for the next generations as well as themselves to mobilize themselves. You have to be in some kind of state of psychological balance to be able to both recognize that and do something about it. Well, Dr. James Gordon is the author of Transforming Trauma, The Path to Hope and Healing. He's also the founder and chief executive officer of the Centre for Mind Body Medicine. Dr. Gordon, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Thank you, Maeve. It's great to be here with you. Dr. Gordon will speak about his current work in Ukraine on June 26th at 6pm at Boulder's Highland Institute. The talk will be streamed online and will be available to watch afterwards. Find out more at highlandcityclub.com slash institute. For KGNU, I'm Maeve Conran.